Today in Canadian History for May the 19th, I'm Joe Barima. A very special episode of Today in Canadian History for two reasons. First, Mark and I are very proud to say that this episode is our 200th episode of Today in Canadian History. Since July 1st of last year, we've spoken to so many contributors covering a wide swath of subjects. Ah, but, but enough of that. The real significance of today's episode is that we're having a party. Parks Canada marks its 100th anniversary today. This is the big one. Back in 1911, the federal government created the Dominion Parks branch to look after a handful of our national parks. The branch was the first of its kind in the world. It's amazing to think of how Parks Canada's name, scope, and mandate has evolved over the years. In recognition of this anniversary, I spoke with Claire Elizabeth Campbell. She is an associate professor in the Department of History at Dalhousie University. She has edited an amazing work called A Century of Parks Canada, 1911 to 2011. In the book, which I'm holding in my hands right now, here, let's flip the pages, make it really genuine. She has gathered 14 fascinating essays on our country's parks agency and national parks system. Claire spent the parks anniversary in Banff. She was kind enough to swing by our studios first to speak with me. Not surprisingly, when the two of us history nerds got together, things got a bit out of hand. So, in honor of our 200th episode and the 100th anniversary of Parks Canada, we have decided to podcast and post the entire interview, trimmed down to around half an hour. We hope you enjoy it. The idea behind uh, the creation, the, the driving force, uh, Bill 85, uh, coming up uh, on 100 years. Yep. The driving force is really a managerial one. And that's why I find it so funny that uh, Ken Burns does this wonderful series on national parks as America's best idea. And Canada's best idea is the bureaucracy to manage the national parks. It strikes me as a very Canadian kind of joke. Um, up until between 1885 and, and 1911, there were only sort of about six or seven small national parks, almost all in the in the Rocky Mountains, and all in federal territory, which meant that they all fell under the jurisdiction of the Department of the Interior, which was um, right up there in terms of one of the most powerful uh, ministries in the federal cabinet, because it was responsible for um, this huge tracts of land, because again, th- um, the provinces are just coming into creation out here. And also responsible for massive resource industry. And the reason that the federal government felt a a parks branch needed to be created or someone needed to be tasked with managing these half dozen parks was that the concept of a national park and the concept of other kinds of lands, um, they had different reasons for being. So that most of the federal attention was focused on forest reserves because these were timber reserves that could be harvested. Um, And then you had a sort of this smattering of national parks. And the Minister of the Interior, Frank Oliver, says to the House of Commons in 1911, the point of a a forest reserve is to keep people out. The point of a forest park is to bring people in. And so they're very aware that the kinds of landscapes that they're creating, these categories of landscapes that they're creating, need different kinds of management. And so they create a very small um, Dominion Parks branch, uh, really only a handful of staffers, designed to um, create kind of a specialty 
style of management for what were very much tourist destinations or imagined as potential tourist destinations. So the idea of creating an office to manage what no one even had really thought about as a system or a group of parks or an idea of national parks really was. It was one of those things that, as a historian, I think we can look back and say, wow, this was the turning point. This was the watershed. I'm not sure that in 1911 they quite appreciated what creating a new bureaucratic office was really going to do. But what it does is it sets out or it singles out national parks as being distinct and as requiring a certain kind of management and as having a certain purpose for the national audience. And that's a real, that's a real innovation because we hadn't, we hadn't thought about them systematically up until this point. Well, I want to talk a, a bit more about um, management um, and how that idea of, of the parks changed, those values changed uh, a bit later. Um, first, I, I want to talk about, you know, since we're sitting here in, in, in Calgary, um, why were the western tracts of land set aside first? Um, I, I'm thinking of, you know, Banff and then um, spreading out east. What, what was the idea behind that? Well, why the West first is there's sort of two answers to that. Uh, one is maybe more poetic and one is more pragmatic. And frankly, that's a really good way to approach environmental history generally is to respect both, both elements. The pragmatic element is that we were completing a transcontinental railway and the CPR needed to find a way to pay for itself. Uh, so part of that is the argument that it will develop the prairies as a settlement destination. But once you get to the mountains, I don't know about you, but I don't really want to farm the eastern slopes. So what else could we sell here? Well, we can sell scenery. And so by conceiving of this incredibly unairable space as scenic, it actually fit very much in with the the aesthetic norms of the day uh, coming over from the old world, coming over from Europe, where um, alpine scenery was considered uh, the most desirable for tourist resorts and tourist spas. And so one of the taglines that the CPR comes up with to sell the mountains fairly, fairly early on is, it's a thousand Switzerland's rolled into one. So there's the pragmatic argument that um, it's, it's a useful way of making money um, by creating these destinations. It's also a pragmatic argument in that this is federal territory. And one of the classic dilemmas in Canadian political history, or one of the classic battles in Canadian political history, is the jurisdictional divide between provincial control over land and resources and federal control over things like national parks. But if the first small parks are being created in what is the Northwestern Territory, the federal government doesn't need to worry about um, any kind of provincial opinion or provincial agenda, as they will, for example, in the 1920s and 1930s when the city of Calgary, just to choose one example, um, tries to access water supply that will affect Waterton. And so that's another example of the federal provincial headbutting. That's also one thing that the federal government will run into when they try to expand the park system eastward, because it becomes apparent by the 1920s that tourist promotion aside, most Canadians at that point live in the east, and most Canadians can't really afford to take the train across the country to come to Banff. So uh, James B. Harkin, who is the first director of the Dominion Parks branch, 
decides that it's important to create parks where Canadians can get to. But at that point, um, and I see this a lot living in the Maritimes, these territories are already held by the province. So it becomes a long-standing political negotiation to release land back into federal jurisdiction. So why the West first? There are reasons of alpine preference. There's that poetic impact of, of the mountains. I felt it just this morning flying in. Uh, but there's also really pragmatic political reasons. How has the government's view of parks and the purpose of parks, how has it evolved over the years? You know, Joe, the more that I think about this, and leading up to May 19th, I've been thinking a lot about it because you're right, I'm getting a lot of questions about it. And I think, if I can make an aside, that's the best thing about centennials or major anniversaries is that people stop and reflect. And as a historian, that's all I can ask for. Um, But when I look back at the language and the purpose and the actions of the Parks Branch in its first hundred years, I'm struck by how consistent the duality is. So that rather than thinking, oh, it's in the 1960s, we discovered environmentalism, or it's after the 1920s, we realized the error of our ways. Right from the get-go, um, right from the get-go, there was an expectation that the parks branch and that national parks would be both for the people. Uh, the phrase is, is for the benefit, education, and enjoyment of the people. That's the language that is still in parks legislation today, and it's in parks legislation um, in the United States from the 19-teens, from, in Canada from the 19-teens. That sense that Canadians have a right to these parks and that they are, in fact, for people to go to. But right from the 1920s and 1930s, we also see a concern about wildlife preservation, about water integrity, about keeping some of these places um, sanctified so that Canadians can continue to go to them. And in 1930, that duality is um, fundamentally entrenched in a National Parks Act that says both national parks are for the benefit, education, and enjoyment of the people. And it is the responsibility of the parks branch to protect, to preserve the parks unimpaired for future generations. Now, in the last 10, 20 years, the phrase unimpaired for future generations um, with regards to ecological integrity has certainly been at the forefront of, of what Parks Canada says is important about national parks. And arguably, that turn to ecology really is developing through the 1970s and and the 1980s. But what strikes me as a historian is the consistency. Um, So that while it is true that by the late 1960s, we see major scientific conferences like Parks for Tomorrow, which was held here at Calgary in 1968, um, while it is true that as National parks are being created in the north in greater numbers in the 1970s and 1980s, and questions of delicate Arctic environments starts to come to the fore. And while it is true that we start to have an explicit critique of overuse of the parks in the latter part of the, the 20th century, the fact of the matter is, is that in 2011, as Parks Canada goes into its second century, 
it is still tasked with doing both things for us. And this is where I think National Parks and Parks Canada is most useful to Canadians. It's a reminder to us that, sure, these are special places, but they tell us more about ourselves. They tell us what we want out of nature, and we want it both ways. We want to be able to develop it for industry to preserve our way of life. We want to enjoy a certain lifestyle. We want to be able to go to parks for recreation. Um, but we also want to think that we can protect the environment, that we are a green country, that we are the, the kind of reservoir of these stunning these stunning diverse landscapes. I think it says a lot about how we want everything. And it tells us a lot about the choices that we've made in terms of environmental management and environmental policy in the 20th century. So you see all of the social and political realities play out, whether it be the 1960s, suburbia, the car. But really what you're saying is you have these two constant themes, regardless of what specifically is being focused on in a particular era mm -hmm. when it comes to Parks Canada, you can kind of weed out these, these two dominant themes that exist throughout. Absolutely. I mean, the question of building highways into parks for car access is almost as old as Parks Canada itself. And certainly from the 1910s, one of the tourism agendas how are we going to get Canadians to these parks so that they will value them as a political priority, as a concept of natural heritage? Well, people are buying cars in the 1910s and 1920s. And so much of the, uh, the park landscape and the park infrastructure that we have in Canada, right across Canada, is really several decades old. It isn't a product of, you know, leave it to beaver era. Uh, let's talk a bit about the bureaucracy, Parks Parks Canada itself. How how is it how has it changed over the years? When I it's rare when I'm out in Kananaskis or when I'm out in Banff that I'm I'm focusing too much on the bureaucracy behind it. But but there's quite a bit of work that goes into this management. Tell us how it's evolved over the years. Absolutely. It has evolved uh, as any government government agency has had to do um, to con constantly make a case for its relevance in an ever-changing federal government system. So when it's created in 1911, it's a fairly small office. Um, there are, again, park superintendents at the, at the local level. Uh, there's an Ottawa uh, office, which sets up right from the get-go what will, in many ways, be a classic question of federal governance, and that you have um, people making centralized decisions to be enacted at the local level. And so that's a classic Canadian tension. Uh, one thing we'll see to correct that or to, to moderate it a little bit is in the 1960s and 70s, they start to create regional offices. Um, so for example, the Calgary office will become home to some of the best research and policy decisions being made about the mountain parks because they know it better. Um, so that's one fairly dramatic um, evolution. Another evolution I think that, that stands out for me is that in the 1950s, when you have to remember Canada is looking northward very ambitiously, it's um, enjoying the economic boom of the post-war period, development is really key. Economic development is really key. Mega projects like the St. Lawrence Seaway are underway. We see the American park system being tasked with 
massive campground development development for for visitors. And as a pro, as a response to that, um, Parks Canada develops um, the question of planning, planning branches. How do we start to think about managing parks ten years from now, fifteen years from now? And I think building the question of planning. Um, because then that, that prompts the question, well, what are our planning priorities? And if you've asked that question, then you start to ask the questions they do in the mid-1960s, which is it, is it visitor use and comfort, or is it protecting geological, biota, historical resources? So that's a, that's a pretty major dis, um, development. The last one that I'd say is that in the 19... Um, 60s and 70s, we start, to, actually there's two more. In the, from the 1960s and 70s, we start to see, we, we see this, this duality of visitor um, benefit and ecological protection consistently preserved. But the priorities get inverted so that the parks governance, parks policy documents start to say protection has to come first, visitor experience will be framed within that. And so that's a pretty profound um, priority, a statement of priority. And then I guess the last sort of bureaucratic development is um, as we start to expand national parks into the north, it's an age of incredibly vibrant um, northern politics. Right. So the Thomas Berger investigation into the Mackenzie Pipeline, the question of sovereignty in the Northwest Passage. And there's a rethinking about what it means to manage national parks. So while we've always been using this language of wilderness, and frankly, we still see it, you know, out in, out in the mountain parks today, Parks Canada starts to use instead the phrase cultural landscape, recognizing archaeological, spiritual, um, land use practices that are, that are millennia old, and that recognize there's a human history in the parks. And so bringing the human history, and certainly the question of historic sites um, had been a park's responsibility since, the 19, since 1917, but the notion of thinking of national parks, which we like to think of as wilderness and sites of nature, as in fact human-occupied in the past, that's a pretty profound shift in thinking as well. Hmm. Um, Bureaucracy. I mean, the word itself. It, it makes it, your eyes glaze over. It makes your eyes yeah. glaze over. You think of a, an entire faceless mass. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm curious in researching uh, for the book um, and putting it together with all the contributors. Are, are there any individuals in in the parks history, in Parks Canada history, that that stand out, um, that uh, that that draw your attention? It's funny. Um, yes, but there should be more. Um, Ted Hart just wrote, uh, if you think my book is big, you should see his book, um, just wrote a, a very hefty biography of James Harkin. And the fact that we hadn't had one up until now strikes me as kind of odd. Um, and he's, frankly, he comes across as a terribly likable guy. And that's the kind of guy you like to think is, in fact, in charge here. Um, we see in the book a particular interest in, I don't, can you call it? her Harkin's right-hand woman, uh, Mabel Williams, who was tasked with writing a lot of the promotional and tourist material that um, gave these, that sort of cemented these parks in the national imagination. Um, it's also interesting for me 
because I'm I'm very I'm very conscious that this is a question not just of environment or ecology, but occupation and power. And it's interesting for me when um, major national politicians show up in the narrative. So uh, when Dief- when John Diefenbaker um, f- tries to defend Prince Albert National Parks against bureaucrats in Ottawa, which I find hilarious because what on earth does he think he is? Um, when Jean Chrétien Said, writes in his autobiography that uh, whenever he decided to create a new national park, he just asked himself, who was the minister of, of as Department of Northern Indian Affairs, what he thought about creating a national park, which he asked the director of parks, which was himself. And, uh, you know, that, that th- the insights into um, how our governance works. I don't think we have enough of them. Um, Gwen Longman does a, an article in the book about the development of archaeology in the mountain parks, which again is certainly decades old, but really only institutionalized in Parks Canada in her lifetime, kind of amazingly. Um, but you have a sort of a few heroic lone archaeologists out there exploring around. I think there is work to be done in humanizing Parks Canada, uh, or at least humanizing Parks Canada's history. It's difficult when you are, if, if anything, I think what our book does is it humanizes the place. It shows how these individual communities and individual parks are um, sites of negotiation and, and get, get built into what they are when Parks is dealing with the local communities, is dealing with the local politicians, but also its rivals in the federal government, pressures from outside. But the movers and shakers in Parks Canada, um, beyond you know Williams and Harkin, still remain somewhat anonymous. <laughs> It's it's great how all these dominant themes in Canadian history are, are reflected when you take a look at, at Parks Canada. Um, I, I I really enjoy that element. The way it sounds as though the book is being approached. Um, I I have a very difficult question for you, or maybe it's not. Um, where does Parks Canada fit into our national identity? You think it wouldn't be a difficult question? <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, actually, I will say this: um, watching Parks. Um, in its own run-up to its centennial, watching them depict themselves, I find really, really fascinating. Um, I mean, there's always been a rhetoric of natural heritage and the the idea that these places are... uh, Kind of somehow innately valuable because as Canadians, we are somehow innately creatures of the wilderness. That's an incredibly dated way of thinking about Canadians. And one thing that Parks Canada has been trying to do in the last handful of years is quite transparently um, try to recruit, try to make relevant the concept of national parks, which for most of the century, we thought of as remote in the west or the north, wilderness in the west or the north. Um, but instead, say to urban Canadians, say to new Canadians, say to, say, Canadians without your typical middle class disposable income, um, these are your places as well. And one of the debates going on um, right now is that Alan McEachern wrote an article about this in the Globe and Mail a few days ago. Um, if we keep making big parks in the north where ostensibly it's easier to do, 
um, are Canadians really going to go there? You know, should we be making parks where Canadians will actually go? But Parks Canada is governed by a systems plan that has divided the country into a series of 39 natural regions. And the idea is to have one park per, so that it's its ecological mandate that needs to take precedence over, oh, you know, that constituency in Calgary, they're particularly vocal, so we should probably create a national park. Um, it's funny. I mean, I, I want to argue that Parks Canada as the official uh, guardian or holder of responsibility for sites of national historic significance and sites of natural ecological significance should be absolutely at the core of our national identity. But I appreciate that that's a subjective statement. And one thing that I would be curious to see how Parks is going to continue to argue for its own relevance. Um, I, I worry in this particular political climate that something like National Parks may have a great celebratory week on the week of May 19th, but are questions of heritage and environment really at the core of Canadians' political priorities? And are we going to be thinking about this on June 19th? Are we going to be thinking about this on May 19th, 2014? Um, so if there is a way to empower Parks Canada to be um, a more, to, to, to be a heavy hitter in, uh, in the federal bureaucracy, that would be great. Um, I don't know. I'd be interested to know what, uh, whether I'm being kind of a uh, a Canadian circa 1955, um, and, and a typical, you know, I mean, I'm precisely the constituency that the older romantic concept of Canada as wilderness, Canadians as children of a new world, I come from um, both in terms of class and heritage, that's, that's, that's the constituency to which I have belonged. But um, I'm very aware that the Canada of 2011 doesn't look the same way it did, you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago when Parks Canada came into existence. It's, uh, I know one of the uh, interesting stories I've picked up uh, involving Parks Canada in the last eight months uh, out here is the uh, installation of wireless, of, of wireless hotspots. Mm. So it's interesting now how people interpret the parks and how yeah. parks obviously yeah. are going to be changed. And see, where, where I would say, you know, sure, wireless is great. I can't get wireless on the U of C campus. I'd just like to state that for the record. So maybe, why, maybe I have to go out to Kananaskis to ah. check my email. But here's, that's not what parks, that's not what, say, Kananaskis. Um, I mean, you could get wireless presumably anywhere, right? Except for maybe the UFC campus. The, the un, what we can learn from Kananaskis, I think, is distinct to Kananaskis. And so where I would really want to see Parks Canada put its energy um, is in promoting these sites, not as sites of recreation and enjoyment exclusively, not as sites of, don't worry, you don't have to camp hardcore or anything, you can still check the hockey scores. But the real benefit of these places, to my mind, is what they can be, what they can be used to teach us about, first of all, the natural world. And most of us, again, living in urban environments, we 
aren't going to be up to speed on that. So they'd be fantastic sites for an environmental education. So playing up that role and that identity. And second of all, using them to say, hey, you know what? We appreciate we have this many national parks. We appreciate that they are snapshots of everything from grasslands to boreal to boreal north. Um, but they are just, they're like a photo album in that when you go someplace, you take photos and they, they snapshot your experience, but that's not the whole of the experience. The whole of the Canadian environment extends far beyond this collection of national parks. And so using national parks to say, these places are important, other places are important too. These places are important and you want many things out of them. What does that say about you, Canada? What does that mean when you go home to your nine to five job and with your daily commute? Are you thinking about environmental issues or historical issues or national identity issues or governance issues that are embodied in a snapshot kind of way in these scattered places across the country. So, I mean, using using parks as, as uh, I mean, maybe it's because I'm a teacher, but using, using parks for teaching. It's, and they certainly do that, but um, it's, I worry a little bit that sort of the question of popularity is winning out a little bit. Today is a day full of Canadian history. On May 19, 1535, French explorer Jacques Cartier left France on his second voyage to Canada. A combination of smoke from forest fires, fog and clouds contributed to New England's dark day on May 19, 1780. It was reportedly so dark in New England and parts of Canada that candles were needed to see in the middle of the day. And on this day back in 1984, Mark actually added this one in, in for me, the Edmonton Oilers won their first of five Stanley Cups in seven years. And as always, on this day, we aired this episode of Today in Canadian History. Today in Canadian History is produced by CJSW at 90.9 FM in Calgary. The executive producers are Joe Barima and Mark Affeld. Original music is provided by the Fisk, Fletcher, and May Trio. This series is not meant to be a definitive source on our past. Instead, we hope that it sparks a desire to learn more about our unique history. For more information on the series, or to recommend an event or moment, check out our website at cgswcom slash History. Two summers ago, I went hiking for the first time in Gross Morn in western Newfoundland and it was it was just stunning. Uh, I climbed up a, a very steep solo hike by myself and ran into a moose and decided that I could keep going over the moose or I could turn around and go fairly quickly back down down the and I got quite the talking to from the Parks Canada interpreter about the discrepancy in size between myself and in fact a full-grown moose. Mm-hmm.